Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Eula Biss. She is the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Howard Foundation, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Her newest book is Having and Being Had, which is published by our friends at Riverhead Books. Eula, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And Eula, I believe you live in a large city, Chicago. Uh, How has it been there during these past several months? Have you been okay, and has your life changed at all? I live just outside Chicago, and um, yeah, I've been fine. My life has changed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I usually teach at a big university, um, but I haven't been there since March. Um, we've been teaching online, mm-hmm. and uh, and I've got a child at home whose uh, school hasn't been in session since March, so mm-hmm. um, he's bouncing around the house. Literally, actually, I can hear him banging on the wall right now, <laughs> <laughs> like a caged animal. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, and you know, our, our my own immediate life has mostly changed in ways like that. Um, but my community has lost people in mm-hmm. the pandemic and uh, it's uh, definitely been a blow here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine um, similar circumstances here. My wife works at a university and also I have a four-year-old downstairs watching a Spider-Man cartoon right now. So if a <laughs> kid comes screaming into the room something about Magneto or Spider-Man, you'll know what's going on, listeners. Um <laughs> Eula, how are you managing the promotion of this new book during this time? Um, well, you know, I'm not... Uh, I, this isn't my favorite part of the process normally. I, I really love writing and I love being in the work while it's still moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I somewhat dread the promotion period. Um so for me, this is actually a huge improvement. Oh, right. I prefer staying home and talking to people over the phone mm-hmm. um, and doing Zoom events over uh, spending weeks away and sleeping in a different hotel every night. So um, it suits me fine, I guess. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Thank you so much. And let's jump into this excellent new book of yours, Having and Being Had. I'm going to start by parroting your opening question or your husband's opening question back at you. What does it say about some of us that we have money and want to spend it, but can't find anything worth buying? Yeah. Well, the question was, what does it say about capitalism? And I, I think that's I started there because I think it's an intriguing question that we're told over and over by experts and non-experts that capitalism has brought us everything we need and want and that all the plenty that we're swimming in is um, is the, the you know the produce of capitalism mm-hmm. um, but I was intrigued by that question because um there, it, it suggests a kind of hollow center and that um, that maybe we're 
surrounded by goods that we neither want nor need and that all the energy that goes into that production could be going towards things that are wanted and needed and in some areas of our society desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And a related question, um, in your very extremely informed opinion, what is value and how does a person or a thing obtain it? Mm, yeah, and I am not extremely informed. I'm just mildly <laughs> informed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't think I can answer that question in any way that will fit inside your podcast. I... I really think this this entire book was uh, a stab at answering that question of what is value. And the corollary for me, the more personal question of what is value and what do I value? What what matters to me? Um, And is what matters to me valued in the the society at large? Um, I think we tend to think of things that carry monetary value, monetary worth, uh, as as holding some inherent value. But um, when I look at my life, most of the things that I I value and that I pour my time and effort into um, don't carry any monetary worth like the the best example is my child Mm -hmm. who's in monetary terms worthless um but you know the the most precious thing in my life Mm -hmm. um so but this there's also a contradiction for me with my art and my art making as well because for most of my career i haven't um i haven't made enough money on my art to pay the rent i've had to um, earn my money elsewhere, and in um, that, but that doesn't suggest to me that the art doesn't have value. Mm-hmm. Um, it instead suggests to me that I, I live within a system that is blind to the value of art making, mm-hmm. just as it's somewhat blind to the value of child rearing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> there's, there's a really interesting uh, economist who wrote called "The Value of Everything." And um, she suggests that it's entirely within our capacity to reimagine our economy so that the things that we say we value, things like the education of children or the the welfare of children, um, actually have monetary value too. Um, Mm -hmm. Her her argument is that these are policy decisions and that, you know, if, if we really value um, children, we can make, we can align that with, um, we can align the care and education of children with monetary rewards too. We can, she's saying we can set up a society where the things we care about, the things that are necessary and essential in our lives are, are also fairly compensated. We just don't have that society or that economy now. Right. And if the education of children, um, for your example, was valued as it is supposed to be, I suspect 2020 would look much differently than it does right now. Um, oh, yeah, totally. And and there are countries, you know, this is 
this is when I say our society, I am speaking from this American context. Mm -hmm. There are countries where um, childhood, early childhood education and um, child care and um, and teaching are compensated differently, where um, teachers are, are treated more like doctors are treated in this country. And um, they're meaning that they're really well-educated, really well-compensated, and given quite a bit of authority and autonomy. Um, I'm thinking of, like, Finland. Um, so that's, you know, this... It, there's already existing examples of how we could approach some things differently. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shula. Uh, there is a passage early on in this book where you were looking at items in a furniture store and you find all of these items collectively to be beautiful, but individually you cannot find anything to be impressed with. Um, can you dive into this concept and elaborate on it a bit for our listeners? Yeah, I, um, this was this interesting moment in my life where I, I suddenly had, the money to buy new things, which this wasn't part of my adult life really for um, you know, the first 15 years of my career. And I was accustomed to when I, when I bought things, buying used things. And so this was a brand new experience for me. I, I bought a house and I was going to furniture stores and um, that is not anything I'd ever done. I'd never set foot inside a store where you bought new furniture. Um, and I was so interested in the, the feeling that these stores ignited in me, just this kind of ambient desire where I'd walk in and feel like, yes, I want this. Um, but I couldn't actually locate anything that I really did want within that space. So mm -hmm. it, was, um, it was this kind of, uh, and I'm in that passage that you mentioned, I quote Lewis Hyde writing in his book, The Gift, where he's, he's talking about consumption being uh, a kind of lust that can never be satisfied, um, a, a desire that's never satiated. And, um, and I was, I was having that experience. I was feeling this desire that couldn't actually be filled by what was available to me. And it was a kind of, uh, I guess for me, it was a desire for something beautiful. Um, and I, I wrote myself to the realization that that desire for me in my life is not going to be filled by a consumer good, that it's, it's really only going to be filled by art and art making. Right. And as I was reading that passage, um, I found myself thinking that if you found the items to be beautiful collectively, why not just buy all of them? Wouldn't that be the most capitalistic <laughs> thing to do? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's how some people end up with a living room that looks exactly like the cover of a magazine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's I, I, I do think that that is sometimes done. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I didn't... I think not only didn't I not have that budget, but I didn't I didn't want that either. I didn't want to live inside the furniture store mm -hmm. or live inside the cover of the magazine. I didn't really want that aesthetic. I was just um, 
I was responding to whatever it was the store was doing to kind of inspire desire. Um, but it, it w- was a desire that I didn't exactly recognize and it didn't feel kind of true to what it is that I truly appreciate in life, I guess. Right. And speaking of furniture stores, Eula, you spend some time talking about Ikea uh, in this section of your book. What is this fascination with Ikea that so many of our fellow human beings have? Why do you think so many people want disposable furniture? Well, Ikea is really, what Ikea offers is well matched to the kind of life that I was living for most of my 20s. Um, I moved, in my 20s, I moved 10 times in 10 years. Mm. And um, and most of those moves were done just in a car, you know, with no van or truck or anything. Um, so I, I took what I could carry. And, um, and Ikea serves that way of life where you have a frequent need for cheap and almost disposable furniture um and that that I I, in the passage where I write about Ikea I I recognize that their mission they have a a kind of um populist mission uh to provide a, a better life for more of the many is how they put it and so the original idea was you know well-designed furniture for all. Um, but the the way that I've lived and experienced IKEA furniture is um, is more like a temporary and stable life for more of the many. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I think I because I have in my family people who are craftspeople who are uh, who have dedicated their lives. To um, learning handcrafts and, and making furniture by hand, I have a I have a lived appreciation of of a piece of furniture that is is made with love and skill and intended to far outlast its maker. I think there's something very beautiful and and even prayerful behind that act. Um, and, and so I, I'm primed by my own life experience to um, feel a sense of loss around furniture that is made to be thrown out. Right. Thank you so much, Eula. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Eula Biss. One man, one sauce, one desire to take your taste buds on a journey of a lifetime. Introducing Bernie Wilde's Adventure Sauce. Be ready to experience a rush of excitement, a hint of danger, a plethora of anticipation, an abundance in flavor, a possibility of romance. Hey, 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 I got this. Hi, folks. Mike Rosado here, host of the Pencil Pushers podcast. I wanted to take a moment to share with you a new heat sauce that some of my friends and I have created called That's Right. Bernie Wilde's Adventure Sauce, the all-purpose condiment sauce with a kick you've been waiting for. Bernie Wilde's was made to put excitement back into your kitchen. 
It's perfect for tossing into salads and pastas, drizzling on burgers, tacos, and takeout, or just straight up dipping. Not only is Bernie Wild's Adventure Sauce packed full of flavor, it's also vegan, gluten-free, and made with no preservatives or stabilizers, making it good for you, good for the environment, and hands down delicious. But as ready as we are to share it with you in the world, we still need the funds to get it into production and onto your plate. We've got a 30-day Kickstarter running from October 14th through November 13th, and with your help, we can get it done. Just go to BernieWiles.com and sign up for our mailing list to be the first Bernie backer. That's B-U-R-N-Y-W-I-L-D-S.com as we take our maiden voyage of Bernie Wilde's Adventure Song. I'm back with Eula Biss, author of Having and Being Had, published by our friends at Riverhead Books. Eula, before I lived here in Raleigh, North Carolina, I lived in San Francisco, and I lived in a nice rent-controlled apartment there, and here in Raleigh, I'm a homeowner. I don't like being a homeowner, and as such, I've been thinking a lot about a quote from your friend who sold her house and bought a bar, and that quote was, I got out of that game. Um, what, Eula, did she mean by that game? And what does the definition of that game tell us about the concept of home ownership in a capitalist society? Yeah. Well, I think that game in this context refers to home ownership as investment um, and as a wealth building strategy. Um, which it definitely doesn't work out that way for many people and, and possibly even most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, when I bought a house, this is one thing that my, my grandfather impressed on me is he said, hey, look, a house is a place to live. It's not an investment. Um, in many cases, it's both. But what he was cautioning me around was um, was buying a house because it's the done thing in terms of of middle class wealth amassment or building and rather than buying it because it's the way I want to live right that's that's what I understood him to be talking about and um and I think that the game part of it is uh is using various policies and both tax policies and um, mortgage policies and uh, a, a whole kind of slew of little policies to um, to make an initial investment and um, and grow it over time you know but that all depends on the, the appreciation of the value of the property um, when really the it, it seems to me that the the way we should be thinking about home ownership is not will this grow in value? Will I make money off of this? Will this um, could this potentially could this investment potentially you know mean a, a more comfortable life for my child? But is this where I want to live? And is this the kind of life I want? And do I want to maintain a house and a yard and have that be part of my daily existence and um there's a lot to be said for apartment living and and much that i miss about it especially the the cooperative aspect of it um i can remember a moment from 
when I lived in an apartment building in Chicago and I needed to go to a hospital uh, unexpectedly. And I simply just knocked on the door of someone in my apartment building and left my child with them. And um, you know, when I came back, I, I gathered him back up. And, um, and that same moment would be different now in, in my neighborhood. I'm sure I could find someone, but it's not the same kind of close community that an apartment building can be. Um, yeah. So there's, I think many people experience something of a loss in terms of playing the game of home, home ownership. Absolutely. Which is not to say that there aren't benefits and advantages. Sure. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And, you know, also the grass is always greener, etc. Um I do next want to talk to you about the Walmart commercial that was filmed in your home. Can you tell our listeners what happened there? You cut out there for a second. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just saying. Um, I next want to talk about the Walmart commercial that was filmed in your home. Uh, can you tell our listeners what happened there? Sure. Yeah, this was very, very soon after we moved into our new home. Uh, my husband got a call from a casting agent, um, and it turned out we learned that the people who had lived in the house before us had made extra money. They were um, actors and set designers, and they had made extra money by um, essentially renting the house out to be used in commercials as a set for commercials. And um, and so they were gone, but the address remained on a list of houses that could be used for commercials. And so we got a call from an agent who wanted to know if uh, if the house was available, and our initial answer was no, it's not available. We live here, um, but then uh, we found out that the terms of the arrangement, and we saw why it had been so um, so appealing to the people who lived here before us. It was the terms were that we had to leave the house for three days and two nights, and we would be paid eight thousand dollars. And um, that, especially in this moment when we just moved into a new house and we didn't have money to buy things like furniture, um, we, we were actually taking out loans against the value of the house to furnish the house. Um, it seemed really appealing to, um, to enter into this deal. Um, but we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know who the commercial was going to be for, um, who was involved. And so we went ahead and, um, and uh, it turned out the commercial was going to be for Walmart and uh, a white set director and a white um, designer came to our house and um, filled it with things from Walmart, Walmart furniture, Walmart pictures and Walmart picture frames and um, and they told us that the commercial was going to feature an African-American grandmother serving a holiday turkey to her family and um, what made this especially resonant or ironic to us was that our house is identical to the house next door and in the house next door lives an actual African-American grandmother. And uh, when my husband told a story to a friend of his, friend who's a sociologist, 
um, the friend said, I think that's the definition of white privilege. Mm -hmm. And what he meant was us being paid quite a bit of money to have our house made over into what the white director and set designer imagined the house next door looked like so that things from Walmart could be sold to black people. Um, so that's the story of the commercial. It yeah. seemed to me like a, a parable of life in America and the many strange advantages afforded to people who are white in this country. Absolutely, and a very pertinent passage to this particular moment in time. Thank you so much, Eula. Um, I next want to talk about the stock market. Uh, in an interesting turn of events for me personally, uh, I used to be a manager at Borders Books and Music in Union Square in San Francisco, and after Borders went bankrupt, I landed at a company called Vanguard, where I obtained my Series 7 and 63 certificates and launched a very short career as a stockbroker. Um, so this was a fascinating passage to me. You write of the stock market uh, and people who have been successful in the stock market that they weren't wizards. They were gamblers who could tolerate major losses. Can you elaborate upon this concept? Yeah, I'm serious, though, as someone who has some experience here. What do you, what do you think of that? Um, I think that the reason that I left that... Um, that work is because I worked there when Facebook went public as a public company and people were calling to invest in it who had never even heard of it. And there were, there were, um, like some older ladies and gentlemen who were calling wanting to invest in the space book, for example. Um, and that's, and, and I'd started at that moment, just seeing the whole thing as like a glorified casino. And so I, I identified with this passage a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been my layperson's understanding every time I have the stock market explained to me by somebody who has more experience or knowledge with it or, you know, in the passage you're talking about, I, I read a book about um, the stock market wizards. Um, and yes, to me, it looks like gambling, not just gambling, but strangely well-protected gambling. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely losses are possible. Mm -hmm. um, but for instance, when I sat down with a financial advisor to talk about um, investing my retirement money in a 401k for the first time, um, which I did rather late in life because um, for the first uh, decade, of uh, <clears throat> of working at the university where I teach, I had chosen not to um, invest any of my retirement money in the stock market. Um, the idea made me uncomfortable. I felt like I didn't believe in the stock market and I didn't want to be financially invested in something I didn't believe. Um, but the impracticality of that got impressed on me by the financial advisor who essentially told me that I was an absolute lunatic mm -hmm. and that what I was doing was not going to remotely change the system, but was definitely going to affect my ability to retire. Um, so I had to kind of reconsider that particular act of protest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And... Um, 
But what's amazing to me, you know, these these conversations that I had with that advisor and another advisor, um, it, whenever I asked a question along the lines of, you know, what if what if something happens? What if the stock market crashes? What if you know? What then? The question was always met with a, but it always comes back that like an assurance that this is an incredibly safe kind of gambling, especially if you're doing it long term. That there will be ups and downs, but in the long run, you will you will make a lot of money off of just investing your money into this system. Um, and what doesn't usually get mentioned in that conversation is how you're making that money. And you're, you're making that money because other people are not getting fair returns on the labor that they're investing mm -hmm. into all these many companies that you're, that you've invested money into these, the, this, the structure of the market is encouraging, um, corporations to reward investors rather than their laborers. And, um, and that's the thing that makes me feel queasy about investment and, um, uncomfortable about how, how we've set up our system for retirement in this country. It really, to me, seems to depend on robbing other people of the, the fruits of their labor. Right. Thank you, Eula. And it is true that to make $10,000, you've got to be willing to lose $9,000. And that's just how it <laughs> works. Um, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, let's talk about credit for a moment. Your book states that credit is a form of optimism. Uh, is this optimism on the part of the lender, the lindy, or both? Mm. Yeah. I think the way our system for credit is set up, I'm not sure that the lender even has to have optimism. Um, but this this was an observation made by um, the, the author of the book, Sapiens. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, and he was talking kind of in the grand scheme of things. He was taking a long view, uh, you know, from the perspective of talking about the, the entire history of humans, um, of the homo sapiens. Um, but he, he was noting the advent of credit and, um, and the observation he made is that credit really only makes sense to the, the borrower. Um, if the borrower believes that their life is going to improve in some way, that their, their ability to make money is going to improve because it doesn't really make sense to borrow if you don't think you're ever going to be able to pay it back. Um, though certainly there are lots of people right now who have no other option and it's whether it makes sense or not, that's the position they're in is to borrow without any hope of paying it back. Um, but he was suggesting that it's a, it's a, it, it's an essentially optimistic move to, to borrow money, um, thinking, okay, something's gonna shift so that I will be able to pay, not just pay this back, but with interest, you know, I'll have this and more at some point. And I, I mentioned that in the book because it helped to me explain why I was so um, averse to credit and to borrowing in my 20s. 
where I, I had already committed to being an artist, to living as an artist, and I already knew enough about the landscape of what it is to be an artist and a writer in this country that I had very little optimism about ever making more money than I was making at that time. So I was extremely reluctant to borrow money. Um, it seemed to me like it would um, it would only be a trap um, to, to borrow money that I would never be able to pay back. Right. Thank you so much, Eula. And there is so much more to talk about here. I think you alluded to this earlier when I um, asked you a question about value, but we could probably do a whole season of this podcast on this book alone. Um, but we want to leave our listeners with a reason for buying the book. I do want to ask you one more question, and this question is about Marxism, um, at least partially. Can you explain your personal differentiation between the concept of work and the concept of labor? Yeah, this was very interesting to me when I was writing this book, discovering that historically most most languages, Indo-European languages, have had two words for work. Um, and in English, those words were work and labor. And they, they meant distinct things. One meant um, it an effort that was unrewarding and toilsome and um, difficult and undesirable. Um, And the other meant an effort that was rewarding and um, and, uh, in, in some way desirable. And so, it boils down to there being two two concepts of work: the desirable work and undesirable work. And um, and depending on who you ask, in in English, the the now I get confused because people think of these differently. But mm. I think labor was the the less desirable work, the the work that was um, the kind of work that would be delegated to slaves or servants. Um, often thought of as, you know, physical labor. Mm. Um, the reason I get confused is the, the poet and writer Lewis Hyde reverses those words. He uses labor as the, um, the positive term, the, the term for work that you do because of its own rewards, mm. um, because of... Uh, he, he, he differentiates between the two in terms of transformation. He said that... that that's what labor offers is the opportunity for transformation. And so some of his examples are raising a child or um, writing a poem or um, developing a new theory. Um, these are all different kind of lines of work, uh, but they, they afford the opportunity for labor that's going to be transformative, both for the person who does it and for someone else as well. Um, it's what I love about teaching. It's I I find it to be transformative labor. It's transformative to me. I change through teaching, but it's also really satisfying to see students change and to see students grow. Um, and so that's that's part of the compensation for the work is the, the satisfaction of doing it. Um, but one of the things that. Uh, this writer, the author of, of a book called Work the First Thousand Years, 
um, one of the things she observes is that these two terms, work and labor, have collapsed in our contemporary usage. We use them interchangeably now, and most jobs involve um, some combination of the two, though there's quite a few jobs that really only offer unsatisfying and untransformative work. Right, absolutely. Thank you so much, Eula, and thank you for writing this wonderful book. I know our listeners will enjoy it, and it will provide them with much food for thought. I have been speaking with Eula Biss, author of Having and Being Had, published by our friends at Riverhead Books. Eula, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Eula Biss for joining me. Copies of Having and Being Had can be purchased from www.quailridgebooks.com. Free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.